to refer to the proceedings spoken of here in this passage of the Bible as the trial or the trials of Jesus would be to do violence to the English language. Because in fact this was a great travesty of justice. The worst possible example extant of a kangaroo court in operation. A mockery of a legal trial, if you will. The commentator Lenski said this, The situation here is legally frightful. Any member or any number of the judges should have risen up and protested against such outrageous proceedings. It casts a black moral pall on all Judaism that such a session of the Sanhedrin should have been possible. Unquote. Really the whole thing here was a fit accompli, as the French would put it. A predetermined outcome was set. The Lord Jesus was to be put to death by wicked hands. That's why I have entitled this message the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. As we look at the portion in Mark 14, we see that in the aftermath of his agony in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus was bound and led across the brook Kidron up to Jerusalem, where he was first taken to the house of the ex-high priest Annas, And we read of that in John chapter 18 and verse 13. After which he was led to the home of one Caiaphas, who was the present high priest. And we read of that in Matthew 26 and verse 57. To give you the chronology, it was already past midnight. But the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and so on, came flocking in by torchlight from every corner of Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus was placed in the middle of a sizable torchlit hall. The company of men in the Sanhedrin, some 70 in number, took their places in an elevated semicircle around Jesus. To the right and to the left there would have been court clerks, who were prepared to take notes on the evidence being submitted. Presiding over all was Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest and president of the Sanhedrin. He was an unusually powerful man who would serve for 19 years, which was actually far above the average term of only four years. He would have done well in the U.S. Congress. But his surname... Caiaphas, or Inquisitor, fit him very well, as he was now to preside over the most infamous inquisition in human history. Though this assembly had all the trappings of a legal proceeding, it was actually illegal. Because according to its own rules, The Sanhedrin was not to make final judgments at night time, nor was it to do so 
outside of its sacred chambers in the temple. Nor was a capital offence, an offence worthy of death, to be determined during the period of Passover. And these were just a few of the illegalities. I'll mention a few later. Nevertheless, they began this charade looking first for the unanimous evidence from two witnesses which was necessary under the law for conviction of a capital offence. The Bible speaks of at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So the Sanhedrin began the proceedings by trying to convict Jesus on the testimony of others. You'll see that Mark records what took place from verse 55 of chapter 14. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none, for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. So they couldn't even get their story straight. Now it is true that early in the Lord's career he prophesied, John chapter 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But of course he wasn't speaking about Herod's temple at all. But as the scripture points out, he was referring to the temple of his body. But this misinterpretation of theirs could have actually earned the Lord a capital conviction because among the Jews, a mere threat made against the temple would have been punishable by death. Now, years before, when Jeremiah had prophesied the destruction of the temple, he was arrested and he was brought before the royal court as a criminal deserving of death. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 26. Now, witness the scene. Even though these members of the Sanhedrin thought they had the best witnesses that money could buy, those men who testified lied without a twinge of conscience. And yet their testimonies were not in harmony. You know, it's hard to get your story straight when you're both telling lies. And that's what happened here. And they were getting nowhere. Thus far, Jesus did not utter a word. And he was winning, if you could put it that way, the court battle. Anger and frustration darkened the Sanhedrin's already glowering faces. They were embarrassed, they were furious, and the chief inquisitor Caiaphas approached the Lord who was silent and basically asked him, are you not going to answer? Are you not going to say anything? Verse 60, answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? It says, but he held his peace and answered nothing. Of course, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. This is a direct fulfillment of that scripture. Now Caiaphas is is somewhat at his wit's end. And Matthew tells us that he actually put the Lord Jesus under oath by the living God. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63. Here's what it says. Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is a different question. And in answer to this, the Lord Jesus was not silent. Caiaphas is asking him two questions. Are you the Messiah? And are you deity? Are you God? The Blessed One is actually something that's used exclusively in the New Testament for God. And the Lord Jesus answered, I am. It's interesting to note, not just the trial, but the trials of Jesus here. There were actually a number of trials that the Lord endured, both a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. You could say he was brought before the religious power and he was brought before the civil power at the time. And we'll come to that in a moment. But there are some things I want to say about this great trial or series of trials. I've called it the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. Because that's exactly what it was. But you might ask me the question, why would you say that? What are the reasons for that charge that you're making that this was not really a proper trial at all, but a mistrial. Well, first of all, I have to point out that it was a trial that was conducted by unscrupulous people. The unscrupulous people are mentioned here in Mark 14 and verse 41. The scripture says, And he cometh the third time, this is in Gethsemane, And saith unto them, that's the disciples, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. And we pointed out when we spoke about that portion earlier in this series, that the hour that was come was the hour determined by God from eternity. There were many times when the Lord could have been taken and put to death, but He didn't allow that to happen because His hour was not yet come. But now it has become the hour of the powers of darkness. The predetermined hour. And so he says, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's how the Lord describes these men who came to arrest him. Judas betrayed the Lord into the hands of of sinners. I have called them unscrupulous people because the Jewish council was made up of men who cared nothing for true justice. And what happened in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ 
was the result of a religious conspiracy. These men were motivated by fear and envy, and they, as the elders of Israel, plotted the Savior's death. Now, why did they do that? Well, because he didn't conform to their traditions, and his authority in word and in deed threatened their power. The Lord constantly exposed their hypocrisy, actually openly calling them hypocrites. He condemned their empty formalism. He said that this people draweth near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, describing the worship of the Jews at the time. And the Lord illustrated the uncleanness of Judaism at the time by cleansing the temple. He did that literally. But there was a spiritual message in it. But now this is their hour. As they come together punching him and spitting on him and falsely accusing him. These learned scribes, very intelligent men, were guilty of intellectual contempt. Jewish life was shaped and regulated by the law of Moses as interpreted by the Talmud. These scribes knew the law. They knew the Talmud inside out. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ was railroaded to rough justice with their consent. They did not care about proper exercise of jurisprudence. And then, of course, added to this, you have the political conduct of Pilate the ruler at the time. Before the Jewish court, the Lord Jesus was charged with blasphemy, even though he was without guilt. Before the civil court, the charge that was brought against him was treason, as if he had spoken against Caesar. And yet Pilate could find no fault in him. It's interesting to note the various references to the purity of Christ. Pilate said it, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that just man. Even Judas, the betrayer, said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. So he was without fault. But yet, when the Lord was tried, there were those who became strange allies in Jerusalem. Strange bedfellows, Pilate and Herod, were made friends together on the same day. They were inveterate enemies. Pilate hated Herod, and Herod hated Pilate. But yet the Bible says that they were made friends because their common enemy was the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone pointed out that during the Second World War, there was forged between Great Britain and the United States, what Winston Churchill called the Great Alliance. However, during the same war, World War II, there was another alliance which might well have been known as the Unusual Alliance. Because Churchill and Roosevelt sat down in conference with a man called Stalin, in a holiday spa at Yalta on the Black Sea and made what became known in history as the Yalta Agreement. And what was unusual about that was that nations which had become 
arch enemies earlier in the war suddenly became friends and were united in a common cause to destroy Hitler. But this other unusual alliance forged in the final days of our Savior's life was actually more unusual even than that. Those who had been arch enemies of Christ formed an uncommon and an unholy alliance against him. And is it not interesting in the light of that to consider that even in our day, there are people who do not agree one with another, but they are united in their hatred of Christ. And there are many examples that I could give of that, even in the political realm. Unscrupulous people. People who do not care about justice or right and wrong. We're still living in a world where unscrupulous people wield power in the earth in many instances. But as well as this, we think about the trial or trials of Christ and the undeniable plan made by these unscrupulous people. I say an undeniable plan because it's obvious from the very beginning that Jesus had no chance of escaping and being declared innocent in that kangaroo court. Look at chapter 14 of Mark, verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. There it is. There's their motivation. There's their plan unmasked by the Holy Spirit. They're looking for the right opportunity to arrest the Lord and to put Him to death. That's what they desired and that is what they planned to do. It was an undeniable plan. Again in Mark 14 verses 10 and 11. It records that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. It's obvious all the way through this passage that their plan is to do away with Jesus. Even in verse 55, it is emphasized, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. It doesn't say that they were looking for the truth, that they were trying to find out the reality of the situation, that they had come as it were, as honest brokers, to decide one way or another whether the Lord was actually guilty or innocent. No. They had an undeniable plan, which was to destroy Jesus. And as we look at the events that surrounded these trials of our Lord, we're struck with the whole atmosphere. The fear of the Jews, the treason of Judas Iscariot, the panic of the disciples the treachery of Caiaphas, the high priest, and in the midst of it all, the serenity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah had written 
several hundred years before this, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then the verse, as I quoted earlier, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Think about the injustice of all of this. Think of the hatred of Christ that existed in these men's hearts. The Lord Jesus was railroaded to judgment which was unfair, disorderly, and illegal. And yet no person who ever stood in any human court was ever more innocent. No trial was ever so false. No crime was ever so evil. And I have spoken of the trial of Christ. It is more proper to speak of the trials of Jesus here. There were actually six trials in all, if you consider the biblical evidence. There were three religious trials, one before Annas. John 18:13 makes it clear. One before Caiaphas. And one before the Sanhedrin, the full number of 70. But there were also three civil trials. One before Pilate, and we could read the scripture that speaks of that. Then there was one before Herod, and then another back to Pilate again. If you look at it, you'll see that before the Jewish court, the charge was blasphemy, but before the Roman court, the charge was treason. So they were determined to have Christ found guilty. The Jewish trial opened by Annas took place in John 18. It then moved to the full council to hear witnesses, Mark 14. And then it moved to an early morning session for the final vote of condemnation. And we see that in chapter 15, verse 1. And straightway in the morning, see this was an all-night affair, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that's the entire Sanhedrin, and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. So now they're taking him to the secular power. But then Pilate, according to the first few verses of Mark 15 and then in John 18, he sent the Lord to Herod. Luke chapter 23 speaks of that. And Herod returned him to Pilate again. Again, Mark 15 from verse 6 to verse 15. And John 18, 39 to 19, verse 6. Pilate yielded to the cry of the yarling mob and delivered Jesus to be crucified. But by the time the soldiers arrived at the palace of the high priest, Peter and John, who were heedless of the Lord's repeated warnings, followed the mob and they even went into the courtyard to witness what was taking place. Peter was obviously cold. He sat by the fire with the enemy. And that's a sad thing. John was also there. But they were at a distance and the two disciples were not able to witness the actual trial but were near enough to see the outcome. And we can see that from what the scripture says in Matthew 26:58 and John 18 verse 15. But this whole business, this whole charade 
showed the unscrupulous nature of men, but also the undeniable plan that they had. They were desirous of killing Jesus. Now why were there so many trials, you might wonder? Well, under Roman rule, the Jews weren't permitted to administer capital punishment. And so for that reason, the Jewish authorities turned the Lord Jesus over to the Roman power. And the Lord was crucified under Roman law. He was not stoned under Jewish law. He was put to death by the Romans, but at the behest of the Jews. But it was an undeniable plan. The Lord never had a chance of being found innocent. That's why I call it the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. And in connection with that, we could speak of the unfair procedure. We've made some reference to this already. But Jewish life and tradition had always been molded and regulated by the law of Moses as interpreted in the Talmud. Their sacred writings. However, even by their own standards, the Lord Jesus received a grievous uh, injustice. There are several laws which were conveniently overlooked and ignored by the Jewish authorities at this time. Let me just mention a few of those. First of all, arrest for a capital crime was to be made in broad daylight and not at night. So they broke that law. Secondly, an arrest for a capital crime could not be made on the information of a follower because his follower could be counted as an accomplice to the crime. They broke that law. Thirdly, no Jewish trial was to be held at night. From dusk until dawn, they could not hold a trial and no trial for a capital crime, that is one that would result in death, was to be conducted during a feast. They broke that law. Fourthly, members of the Sanhedrin, after hearing testimony regarding the one who was accused of a capital crime, were not permitted to give an immediate verdict. Justice demanded that they first return home for two days and two nights. A bit like when there's a trial today and the jury is sent home or the jury is sequestered for a period of time so that they can consider the evidence and come up with a proper verdict after due consideration. This was supposed to be done. And only then could they hear again the testimony against the accused before giving their verdict. But that didn't happen in this kangaroo court. Fifthly, members of the Sanhedrin must only vote one at a time, beginning with the youngest. That didn't happen. Number six, all the witnesses against the defendant had to be questioned separately, and they all must agree in detail before the evidence be admitted and they didn't do that either and in the seventh place no single person could act as a judge 
A verdict could only be reached by a court of at least three people, 23 people, or 73 people. But the Sanhedrin kept breaking their own procedural laws in what became a gross miscarriage of justice in a kangaroo court. Think of this situation. Amos, aforementioned, was the father-in-law of the current high priest whose name was Caiaphas. I mentioned the fact that Caiaphas had served for such a long period of time, he should not have been allowed to serve for all those years. But he was a, a very wealthy and influential man in Israel. According to history, Caiaphas owned and operated the money-changing system which was corrupt to the core. And so ever since Jesus upset his business in the temple courtyard, Annas had a personal vendetta against him. But even in the rending of his garments, the priest disobeyed the law. You notice how that happened here in Mark chapter 14. When in verse 63, it says, Then the high priest rent his clothes. He tore his garments from his body. That was in disobedience to the law of God. Now we think about how much the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure from lying, unscrupulous men. When he was tried before these chief priests, he never had a chance of ever being found innocent because they were determined to do him to death. We're told here that even many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. The evidence did not gel. But of course, that meant nothing to these who were determined to have him killed. J.C. Ryle said, We can easily conceive that this was not the least heavy part of our blessed Saviour's passion to be seized unjustly as a malefactor and put on trial as a criminal when innocent is a very severe affliction. But to hear men inventing false charges against us and coining slanders, to listen to all the malignant virulence of unscrupulous tongues let loose against our character and know that it is all untrue, this is a cross indeed. The words of a tale-bearer, Solomon said, are as wounds that go down into the belly. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8. It was the psalmist David who said in Psalm 120, verse 2, Deliver my soul from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. But as Ryle put it, all of this was part of the cup that Jesus drank for our sakes. Great indeed was the price at which our souls were redeemed. You know, it's a sad thing to be lied about, to be slandered, to be accused of things that you're not guilty of. This is what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. But it should not surprise any of God's people if they receive the same kind of treatment in the world. There are believers who have been slandered and misrepresented 
in the world and by the world. And they should not be surprised by that because they're not to expect to fare any better than their Lord. The Lord Jesus said it, didn't He? In John chapter 15, that if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Just to quote Ryle again, he said, Lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. See, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And so when the devil can't deter men from serving Christ, he labors to harass them and make the service of Christ uncomfortable. But let us, the old preacher said, bear it patiently and not count it as a strange thing. Let the words of the Lord often come to our minds Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Isn't it interesting that the Lord would use that terminology concerning the treatment of his own people by the world because that's exactly what lay ahead for him just before he went to the cross. They said all manner of evil against him falsely. Oh, the insults and the humiliation that the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure. But as one put it, concerning the crowd that put the Lord to death, that crowd was guilty of making the wrong choices and they had to live with those choices. The blood of Christ was on their hands. While it was true that they put Jesus on trial, and delivered him to be crucified. The truth is, it was really the Pharisees who were on trial, and their choices sealed their fate. There's a fourth thing I want to mention here in regard to the trials of Christ, and that is in the aftermath of it, right at the end of it all, there was the unjust proclamation. What was that proclamation? In verse 63 and 64, the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now some have taken issue with that expression, have even criticized the authorized version because of it. But there's nothing wrong with this. The word guilty means liable to punishment. So if you read it that way, They all condemned him to be liable to the punishment of death. He deserved to die according to them. But this was, I say, an unjust proclamation. The Lord was innocent. When these false witnesses were brought before the Lord at the high priest's palace, they actually indicted themselves because one witness contradicted the other. If this was a proper court run along proper lines, their evidence would have been dismissed right away. The judge would have said, you fellas can't even get your story straight together. I'm dismissing this evidence. It's not admissible in this court. As I said earlier, even Pilate was forced to confess that he could find no fault in him. So why was he going to be put to death? 
Why was he going to go to a Roman gibbet and die if he found no fault in him? The Lord's innocence is very clear here. It was an unjust proclamation. Added to the innocence of the Lord was his silence. You know, the Lord could have cried out in defense of himself. He could have said, this is ridiculous. This is a travesty. None of this makes sense. Even operating his own defense, he could have easily overcome the charges that were false. But can we not say that by every step to the cross, the Lord has left an example to his people of how to bear up under suffering unjustly imposed upon them? Listen to the words of Peter. 1 Peter 2.23 When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Basically, the Savior said, Father, you know what the truth is. Like Job, many years before, who said, My record is on high. The Lord knows what the truth is. And so the Lord's silence and the Lord's serenity in the face of all of this were evidence of the confidence that he had in the Father's plan. And so when we think about the unjust proclamation and say it wasn't fair that Jesus was condemned to die, by any standard of judgment it wasn't fair. Yet we can still come back to my fifth point, which is this. In the trials of Jesus and his ultimate death, you have the underlying purpose. Look with me at Mark 14 from verse 21. Verse 21, you have the words of Jesus himself. The Son of Man, that's himself, indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. You know, this is interesting. This was something that was planned by God. It was purposed by God. It was predetermined by God. And yet those who were guilty of betraying the Lord and crucifying the Lord were still guilty. That's why it tells us, in the sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2 that by wicked hands you have crucified and slain him. They were still guilty of sin even though what they were doing was carrying out God's plan. It's a remarkable thing. And Jesus outlines it here. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. This is something that the Bible talks about. Read your Old Testament and you'll find that this is the way it's supposed to be. And yet at the same time, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good for Judas Iscariot if he had never been born. So Judas was guilty. Guilty of a heinous crime. And yet God overruled what he did for the fulfilling of his purpose. And that is why in those verses that follow, the Lord, as they did eat, took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to him and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, 
when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, verse 24, This is my blood of the New Testament, or the New Covenant, which is shed for many. There's an underlying purpose. And again, as you look at verse 49, the Savior said to those that came to arrest him, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. There it is. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. When we understand the trials of our Lord, we see that there was an underlying purpose in it all. The Lord Jesus had come into this world to save sinners. He came for this express purpose, to die the just for the unjust. Oh, He is the just one. One who never sinned. One who never personally had any spot or stain of sin attached to His perfect person. They couldn't find Him guilty in the court by the proper means because He was innocent. And yet He went to the cross. The human procedure was unfair, it was unjust. It was the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. But in God's purpose, the Lord Jesus was becoming liable for our sins and was then justly punished for them. You know, that's the thing that's very hard for us to get our heads around as believers And that is this fact, that ultimately on the cross, Jesus deserved to be punished. You say, well, how could that be? Well, it's because he made himself liable for our sins. He became identified with us. As the hymn writer said, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary where He suffered and died alone. The Lord Jesus became liable for your sins and for mine. He had never sinned, but He was as if He had sinned. He was treated by the Father as if He were guilty. Because in terms of justice, He made Himself to be guilty, liable to our punishment. That we might go free. What a gospel we have to preach. Where the claims of justice have been met in the cross. And the grace of God is manifested in that cross. Grace and justice. Here. Agree to endless days. The just for the unjust, he died that he might bring us to God. Just as a point for us to consider, when we understand the trials of our Lord as believers, we see how small our own tests are by comparison. Peter, as we note in the scripture, had forsaken the Lord at this hour. 
But later it was Peter who explained that we were all called to be like Jesus. Who before Pontius Pilate gave a good confession. And left us an example that we might follow in his steps. This was a terrible miscarriage of justice. And yet the justice of God is satisfied in it all. Because now we who are in Christ can be rightly declared innocent, declared righteous in the sight of God. Because Jesus has borne our punishment in his own body on the tree. Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine because the sinless saviour died my sinful soul is counted free and I trust that that is the experience of each one that hears my voice today you'll know what it is to be righteous in Christ for God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.